talking about following Jesus, the being, the growing, and the doing. And I mentioned a few weeks ago how this is just continually kind of a, a debate within the church, the being versus the doing, the Martha versus the Mary. If you don't know who Martha and Mary are, they're just two people in the New Testament. You can read about them. But one of them seemed to be engaged in the being, and one of them seemed to be engaged in the doing. And, and on the surface, it would look like Jesus said, the being is better. And so being people have said being is better. And doing people uh, suggest that if no doing gets done, then there is nothing done. And so there's this challenge across there. And I, I mentioned, I think this would be a really bizarre challenge to Jesus. I think he would wonder, uh, wow, that's a very human question. Uh, not one that interests me uh, because I think Jesus does not separate them. He sees being as a part of doing and doing as a part of being. And in that, we find growth. Um, we've been talking about the gospel for several weeks, just kind of what has happened with much of the church and the gospel, perhaps, that the, the, the gospel seems to... Um, not do everything that the scripture suggests the gospel does. That our lives don't witness, don't experience some of what the gospel calls as its, its power. And it, and it seems like that we often have really surrendered much of the power that really engages us. It's a part of us changing, a part of us being different. That we've made the gospel more about fire insurance, more about belonging, more about other things, but not about being different, not about changing, not about the, the things that we don't even like about ourselves, having an opportunity to be different. And so somehow we've, we've made the Christian just forgiven. And forgiveness is a big part of, of, of walking in Jesus. But being different I'm sorry, forgiven, but being different is the real part of being forgiven. It's the punchline. It's, it's, I mean, it's like, um, it's like if you lose your legs and I say, that's okay, you've lost your legs and now you develop a, 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 a drug addiction to painkillers uh, because of that. And now I say, well, that's okay. You're forgiven for your addiction. And you're miserable and you're in debt with this addiction and then you die in five years from your addiction. Did the gospel really do anything for you? Was, it, was, it, was there any power for your life to be transformed or different? Or were you just okay to be a drug addict? You see, the difference with the gospel is it's very power to change, not just from hell to heaven, not just from unforgiven to forgiven, not just, you know, hostile to God to a friend of God, but to change everything about you and I. And it's in that context that we encounter the full measure of the gospel. And that is the measure of the gospel that we extend to the world. You see, without something being different, 
then we're just going with knowledge or a philosophy. We're just taking another opinion. You might as well talk about uh, Trump and, and Sanders. You're just bringing an opinion. It's a religious opinion. And it may have value, it may not. This week I was reading in the news, uh, it went viral, uh, a, um, I think it was a, a female, a lesbian waitress, instead of getting a tip, somebody leaves them a Bible verse. Do you think they were blessed? Do you think they looked at that verse and, wow, I'm encouraged? Now, I don't know what the Bible verse said. But it doesn't sound like it said Jesus loves you in an amazing and powerful way. It said something different. Our gospel, for it to do much at all, has to be powerful. And what the church has to do is fill itself with the gospel. Its people have to fill themselves with the gospel because we can't communicate to others what we don't perceive ourselves. What we haven't grasped ourselves becomes a truly philosophical discussion with other people. Last week, we shared these verses out of 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It really sets the stage for where we've been coming from where, where the, the word tells us this, it's by the, his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature. And the point of the scripture there is everything has been given to you and I through knowing him to be different. To be somebody truly different. To be somebody that's different enough that the world would know you're different. There's something different about you. You see, that's when the gospel begins to get its traction. And then with that, it added on that with this foundation of faith, this moving into a knowledge and an acceptance and a receiving of Jesus, it says, all right, now I want you to start building and adding to this a moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, love for everyone. This is not like an exclusive list. This is saying, begin to operate, begin to practice the nature of God. If you practice, if you work to practice the nature of God, I assure you, your walk with God will be very different. If you begin to look at these and say, I want these to be resident and evident in my everyday life, it will change everything. First, you will find out you're really far away from this list. Many of us. The second, you'll find out how difficult this list is. We can even use the word impossible. And then we go back to the reference of Scripture. It says, you have been giving everything to be this list. So there's that fight in the Scripture. Okay, I've been given everything to be the list. I can't seem to be the list. What's the difference between these two? Aha, it's the gospel. It is the power for God to change us. 
And what we see from this is practice, practice, practice. I've been practicing hanging on to my joy. I think it's just really a telling instrument. And we've, we've talked about joy, but hang on to my joy in all circumstances. So yesterday, we take this door, our front door, to Rosenberg. If you've seen our house, we have plywood where the front door goes for longer than I care to admit. And this door, I've been trying to get somebody to strip it. Um, and this, this place is in Rosenberg. We, I've taken that door there maybe three times. Loaded the door up, gone to Rosenberg. You know, miscommunications and things. Long story short, yesterday it looked like we were going to have this watershed weekend. We were actually going to pick out granite. Thank you, Jesus. That, that really happens. And we were going to get this door delivered. And I'm going to have a front door and no scaffolding, no plywood, a piece of front door. At this very moment, that door is still in our vehicle. That person did not show up. Man, I did not have my joy. I did not have my joy. And I go to this place where Melinda's waiting on me, this little restaurant thing, uh, because she, her leg isn't working well, a sciatic nerve. And so I walk in. She's smiling. I'm not. The waitress comes over. I blow off the waitress. I'm sitting there frustrated. And, and, and part of me is like, Bill, it's a door, and it's not like this is new, okay? Why are you so frustrated? Because I'm sick of messing with this door. You see how justified that is? You see how right I am? You see how obligated the world is to recognize and appreciate my frustration? You see how absent the gospel is? You see how I'm, not only am I not talking to the waitress, I'm not asking the Lord what he's doing with the waitress or with the three ladies sitting across from us or even with Melinda. I'm not engaged in anything God is doing because I am engaged in what I am doing. And I am complaining internally profusely, some external I might add, about this door. I felt like the Lord said, wow, you really gave up your joy for a door. I did. I did that. A, a bad trade. A really bad trade for me. You see that moment of feeling like I'm getting my revenge or whatever that thing is, is taking something very precious from me. Very, very precious, very powerful. It takes me out of what God is doing. I surrender my post. I surrender the moment. This is a moment in time I cannot get back. I can't get back to that spot of what God was doing in that moment. Who knows what was there for me? I thought, 
I got to go back and I, I got to, I mean, I was out of the building by this time. I got to, I got to get my joy back. I got to undo the trade. I want my gospel back. You see how we surrender the gospel? It's not that we're unsaved. We just surrender its power. We trade it for cheap tricks. We trade it for a moment of revenge or an outburst. We'll trade it sometimes for the dumbest things. And the gospel becomes quiet. Out of this, our part to changing, to being transformed, the gospel and the Holy Spirit making this difference in us is we really have to respond. We have to say yes to it. We have to say no to other things. We have to practice what the gospel is doing in you and I. We operate in it. We, we move in it. We trust in it. We depend upon it. We consider it the pearl of great price, a preciousness that cannot be surrendered for anything. And then that we become different. It is this individual. It is this person that I'm speaking of. This is the one who can proclaim the gospel. This is the one who's moved past where are you going to go when you die? You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell? This is the one who's moved past some set of rules that you can, you can accurately declare to someone and call that the gospel. This is the person that's beyond that and has moved in to a dynamic, life-giving reality in the world. That's what's different. It's very different. Now, the word used uh, is evangelize. And I think most of us have this strange idea of that word and, and evangelist, that evangelists are somebody on a platform and they're this or whatever you, whatever you see when you think of evangelist. And for somebody who has, you know, a, a gift of evangelism, they may be in front of a big group of people. But remember, it is the gospel being communicated is what evangelism is all about. I give you a definition. In the Greek, the verb used for this expression to, is to announce good news. That's, that's what It's not even a religious term. You could use it for a bar mitzvah. It's to announce good news. That's what evangelize means. It means to proclaim, to declare, to reveal great news. Years ago when I, I, uh, was, I was a young teenager and myself and a, a friend of mine, we rented a canoe and we got on the river and, and I very quickly learned to hate the canoe because it was only with great force that you could get the canoe to go where you're going. I thought the Indians didn't figure it out. You know, the canoe is a, is a beast to manage. When you see people... Going down the river, I mean, they can hit a spot that big, and there's just one person in the canoe. I'm thinking, why is it somebody telling us, instead of laughing at us, you're doing it wrong? 
So I just began to watch people. And I learned at a ripe young age that you steer from the back, not from the front. Very key. In our canoe, the person steering from the front was leaning over the top doing this or this, and the canoe is shaking. The other person in the back is giving the power, you know, kind of like a, a 65 Chevy or something, you know, steering from the front, traction from the back. But that's not what canoes do. We needed some good news. We needed some relevant news. It would not be judgmental to say, let me tell you about another way. In Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins. Believe the good news. So let's put some meat on the bones of this idea of the gospel. Let's just, let's just kind of pull together some descriptive lines over what the gospel is rather than just saying it's being saved. So I made a list here of some bullets. Here's what you can share. There's a God who loves you and pursues real relationship with you. Did you know that? He made a way for every weakness, every flaw, sickness or disease to be healed. Did you know that? He can heal every disappointment, every missed opportunity, hopelessness in this life. Did you know that? Did you know he has dealt with every mistake, every regret? Did you know he has broken the power of death to permanently claim your life and wants you to live with him forever starting right now? Did you know that? He gives you unconditional acceptance, hope, and love. Did you know that? That's the good news. Doesn't it sound good? That sounds good. If you write that on a ticket and then you give them a really, really, really big tip, now they're listening. Because now we have put the proclamation with demonstration. And for somebody who makes their living on tips, that is a great proclamation to them that you would put your money where you say your power is. You give no tip, and you give them just words, or just words. Why? Because there was a proclamation, but there was no demonstration of the proclamation. You want to show love to a waitstaff? Tip them well. Tip them well. That's the good news. That's the landscape. But this good news has to be more than words. And here's why I want you to think about it that way. I want you to look at this list. If somebody walks up to you and says, hey, did you know this? That's a pretty big list, isn't it? I mean, that's a pretty big list. That's a list that says, right, right. That's a list that's a little hard to believe. 
And this is why it does need demonstration. Beyond just words, it needs demonstration. John Wimber, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, he had three questions when he was kind of looking at evangelism. He looked at how did Jesus evangelize? How did Jesus commission the disciples? And in light of that commissioning, how did the disciples evangelize? Remember, evangelize is how did they share the good news? That's what that term means. How did they share the good news? How did they share the list that we just showed? Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25. I think this is out of New Living. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and the people soon began to bring to him all who were sick, and whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed uh, or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. Jesus proclaimed, and he demonstrated. I don't know where you line up on demonstrations of the gospel, but you cannot read the gospels without seeing that the message of the kingdom came with the demonstration, because quite frankly, the message, if it's taken seriously, is too big to believe. It's a wish, it's a wish list. The gospel came with demonstration. How did he commission the disciples? Well, it started with a bit of a rebuke. After Jesus is resurrected, Mark chapter 16, we'll start with verse 14. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. Do you know, some of the greatest skeptics of the power of Jesus are in the church. Somebody in our church shares, oh, God did this. Yeah, well, maybe. That person always has stories like that. She's one of those. She watches those guys on TV and sends them money. We find a reason to discount the gospel. We find a reason. I'll tell you somebody else that you know who does this. I do this. And God has rebuked me. There's a hardness of heart there. God was saying to me, 
when do you get to decide how and when I work? When is it your judgment that I'm glorified or not? Who made you the person who decides? Why would you withhold celebrating my glory? Why would you choose skepticism over somebody's story over celebrating? Why would you do that, Bill? I don't know. Maybe sometimes I don't like their story. Maybe sometimes I don't like them. Maybe sometimes they don't believe exactly the same way I believe. The scripture calls that hardness of heart. You see, God is often required by human beings to jump through a lot of hoops for us to buy in. He is a supernatural God engaged supernaturally with human beings. But you will never be completely effective with the gospel with just words. The gospel is about what Jesus has done, is doing, and what he will do. Done, doing, will do. That's what the gospel is about. If the gospel has no power to do those things, if it's no longer doing, and we can't count on it to be doing in the future, then the gospel has become something of the past. You see, evangelism is about sharing what God has done, is doing, and will do. It is putting our faith and our risk and our trust in that reality and counting on it to be so. And we're willing for those words to come out of our mouth, and we're willing to step into a role of action with the gospel. You see, the evangelism is not about a gift, and it's not about salvation. It's about the gospel affecting and influencing the world. Forget the word evangelism. It's about the gospel being received and felt by other people. It's about operating in you and I so that when I go out and I tell someone about the gospel, I'm not telling them something I read. I'm telling them something I am experiencing. When I tell people about my joy in my hard times, whether they like it or not, it's always an interesting story to them. How did you do that? How do you do that? Great that you ask. It's the gospel. It's just a small part of the gospel. There's big pieces of it. You'll be amazed. It's just one little piece. That's how Jesus did it. And because they would not even believe one another about the resurrection... I mean, these are people they walked with. These are people that, that ministered with them. And when you have somebody that's done ministry in the supernatural with Jesus, the supernatural, has carried the gospel for three years with them, and then they say, I don't buy that resurrection thing. Oh, yeah, it's only what Jesus talked about. It's only what's in the Old Testament prophesied and what we've been doing for three years. And that person reminds me a little bit of me. We need to take caution. We need to celebrate stories of Jesus' glory. I'd rather be wrong in believing it 
and they take one moment of God's glory. After Jesus challenges them on their unbelief, it says in verse, verse uh, 15, and then he told them, Go into all the world, preach the good news to everyone. There it is. Share the good news. Tell them the list. Tell them it's real. Anyone who believes is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. That's not a curse. That's a reality. It says the ones who believe the gospel will have life. This is not about what's going to happen to them. This is about what's at stake. All right, this is about what's at stake. This is why it's important to go. And not everybody is going to believe. Jesus was raising people from the dead. He was healing the sick. Giant crowds were following, he said, but some didn't believe. It's hard to believe. Not everybody is going to believe when they're right, when they're faced with it. But our job is to make the gospel clear. Our job is to make the decision clear. A real one. Not a philosophical one. Not a religious one. A real one. A life decision. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink any po anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. Now, I know we have many jokes about snake handling and poison drinking uh, in the church. Some churches practice that and take it seriously. Uh, other, other, others of us have made jokes. And my initial desire was to leave that verse out. But that verse is not about let's go out and handle snakes. That verse is about the gospel. That verse is about there is protection that goes with you. There is power that goes with you. And we see Paul in this very scenario. We see where Paul is bitten by a, a serpent that comes out of a fire. And, and, the, and the tribe who saw it, they knew what kind of snake it was. They knew it was deadly. And they were waiting for him to die. And when he was bit by it, they knew that this man is cursed. His God is really mad at him. And now he's going down. Now the truth is out. Either your God isn't real or he does not like you. You're done. But then he lived. Then he didn't get sick. Oh, that changes the whole story. Your God loves you. Your God is far more powerful than we've ever seen. And now we want to listen. That is what I'd call very effective handling of snakes. It was called your bit, and he shook it off. God is with you with the gospel. And there will be evidence that the gospel has power. Not philosophical power. Not religious power. Power. 
hope. See, power is hope. It's hope for change. It's hope to be different. It's, it's hope that we actually can make a difference. It's that kind of hope. It makes us a part of the solution in the world everywhere we go, no matter where we are. Evangelism is not about a stage. It's not about a gifting or a calling. It is about the gospel in the hands of those who embrace all that it is. It is about the good news in the hands of those who are willing to step with God into all that it means for the gospel to touch a human being. That's what evangelism is. It's not a job. It's not a gift. It's not a calling. It is a reality that we step into as people of the gospel. And whether you're shy or you talk too much or you're smart or not so much, you can be effective with the gospel because the gospel is effective when it is put in play. Because it's great news. As we share it with others, it gets on us too. I got my joy back. I don't hate my door. I told Melinda I wanted to burn it. I don't want to burn my door anymore. In fact, I want to see some great evangelism come out of this door. It's cost me a lot. There's got to be real life associated with that door somehow. Don't you, don't you agree? I don't know. Maybe I have, to, I have to do something weird, put it on TV or something. That door is going to produce real life somehow. I love my door. When Jesus had finished talking with them, that was his commission. His commission was, go do what I've been doing. Stop doubting the gospel. That's what they're doubting. You see that? That's what they're doubting. You doubt the resurrection, you're doubting the gospel. You doubt God's love for you, you're doubting the gospel. You doubt his desire, his willingness to heal other people by you saying, I will pray for you, lay hands on you, and you will be healed. You're doubting the gospel. You're not doubting you. You can't heal anybody, but the gospel can. So let's not doubt the gospel anymore. Will everybody be healed that you pray for? Probably not. Are you keeping score? Why, why would you do that? Why don't you focus on what you know the gospel says? Pray for the sick. Pray for them. That they will be healed. That's simple. It doesn't say, and count how many are, are, are healed and how many are not and decide if you have the gift of healing. What? This is not about gifting. It's about the gospel. And if you pray for 15 people and one person is healed... 
at least one person out of 15 is going to be really grateful you prayed for them. When Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken into heaven. He sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. So how did the disciples evangelize? How did they do it? It says here, and disciples went out everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. Said and signs. The Lord was with them. But there is language around the church that those gifts died out with those apostles. But it's not even true in the scripture. When you look at people like, like Stephen and, and others, they weren't a part of that group. They were the second generation. You see the second generation at work doing the very same things. Why? Why would that be true? It would be true because the gospel still needs demonstration two ways one you're different and you carry a different message a message of life but also carries the power of hope in your life right now today that you and I can be different Acts 5 starting in verse 12 New Living Translation the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were met or meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. I believe there are many ways to grow the church in numbers. But that's the building, that's the denomination, that's on a Sunday morning setting. But to build the church means to build the people of God. That requires the gospel. For for the group of God's people to grow, it requires the gospel. That will become necessary. Not necessarily to gain numbers, but to gain the church. You see the difference? Filling the church, I, I know somebody is his youth group. He offered, uh, everybody who came to youth, he'd give them a $5 bill. That's a true story. And I'm, I'm listening to this over my shoulder. It weren't talking to me, but it's talking to two guys. I'm thinking, really? I'm thinking, how sustainable is that? And, I mean, you're getting all your buddies. Hey, come get a five. We'll put our mon money together and go get a baggie and have a great time. If that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. You can gain a lot of numbers in your youth group. 
but you didn't grow the church. You didn't grow the people of God. Now, can you grow it once they're there? You take that anywhere you want to take it. But the truth is, at some point, we have to be a people of the gospel if we want God's people to be a growing number. This is how the church grew. This is how the people of God grew. Men and women convinced by the message and by the demonstration of the gospel. The gospel to be complete in us. We're going to have to address our hardness of heart, our biases. We're going to have to bring everything into the gospel. Does that make sense? Your anger, your frustration, your bigotry, your judgment of other people, your judgment of God, your judgment for yourself, all that has to come into the gospel. You know, it's like a toxic waste site. Everything has to go through the process of being decontaminated. We take that seriously. Our hardness of heart is a big part of why the gospel is weak and silent in our lives. When I say in our lives, in our own lives, much less coming from our lives. We have to be growing in personal spiritual fruit. At least we had earlier. What the Holy Spirit is doing in us, we have to practice that. We have to practice love. We have to practice forgiveness, kindness, patience, meekness, self-control. We have to practice those things. You know, we're just not born good at most of that. I was talking with youth a couple of weeks ago and we said, yeah, who strolls this? 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 Like, wow. I need a group rate. But if we were honest and I asked the adults that, you'd be probably doing that too. Self-control? Yeah, I could use some of that. You know? Am I kind to other people? Do I love everybody? Well, I could, I could use some help with that. Patience? Oh, yeah, I'm all over Patience. They have to be growing in us. And here's what they will make you do. They will make you stay close to God. A while back, I had our leaders um, do a fast. They're going to pray for the church. We were fasting. And uh, I'm not really a, a believer, not a fan of, not about a believing, but I'm not a fan of just fasting a meal, something like that, every day for a month or something, mainly because I could give up two meals a day and it wouldn't bother me at all. Most of the time, I can give up three meals and it really won't bother me either. Most people think I'm addicted to coffee. The truth is I just like coffee, and I give up coffee pretty easily. So I have, to, I have to get creative on something, and the point is I need to feel it. If I don't feel it, it's not going to have much of an effect. It'd be like me giving up cigarettes. I don't smoke, so it's real easy. For the next month, I will not buy any cigarettes. It's easy for me. So for me, 
my fast was I have to be in bed by 11. I know, I know. It killed me. And I could read something. You know, I'd, I'd be in bed, I could read something, but it like couldn't be anything for a sermon or anything like that. Oh my gosh, it was so difficult. It's like at 10.30, I feel like I'm just getting my second wind. I think, I feel like a kid. I got to be in bed in 30 minutes. Oh man, God, do I have to? Can I stay up just a little bit longer? No. Here's what it does. Every time I think about that, it reminds me to talk to God. And every time I thought about having to go to bed early, I began to pray for the church. I had a friend, he gave up Facebook for a month. He was a Facebook addict. He said, Bill, I had no idea. He said, I was praying all day long for the church. Because he was used to getting his phone every five minutes and looking at Facebook. He go, okay, God, thank you, Jesus. I'm just lifting up the church. Do you see how much you can pray for the church if you just replace something? That's how these things are. If you have anger, you have trust issues, you have jealousy issues, you have greed issues, you have lust issues. Oh, those are great things to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, give him your lust. Lord, every time I have a lustful thought, I'm turning my eyes to you, I'm turning my face toward you, and I will enter into prayer, and I will intercede for the church. That's the gospel right there. Where something of you dies, but something that God is doing is birthed. Now, if you, hurt, if you tell people, I'm giving up lust for Lent, <clears throat> you may have trouble with some people, but I'll, I'll take any use for you to give up lust. You can just pick any excuse you want, uh, and if you're replacing that with interceding for the church, I bless you. And this is on tape, so probably I'll hit some kind of a message on that, but take risk. You've got to take some risk. Our sound guy was just sharing with me before the service. I was at, uh, I don't know, some fast food place, and this lady's kind of holding her mouth or something like that. He says, hey, are you all right? Oh, she has, I think it was a toothache. He said, well, why don't you let me pray for that? Isn't that great? How many of us notice that she's got a toothache? See, that's the gospel. You're actually noticing somebody that's not about you. And he offers to pray for her, and she says no. But he goes and sits down, and he prays for her anyway. She asks later, hey, how's your tooth doing? Oh, it's much better now. Now he's beating himself up because he didn't say, oh, I was praying for you. That's why it's better. I'd say he did pretty well. What do you think? I, I want his autograph. I, I think that gospel will work. Take risk, folks. Pray for the sick. Do things Jesus did. Share on it and then do it. And recognize that your journey will not be natural. 
meaning it will always require something beyond your natural capability, or it's not a Jesus journey. If you don't swallow hard every little bit, I don't know that you're out there far enough. 